The Outlet. The Talk of Queenstown. Hi and welcome to The Outlet. I'm your host Brent Harbour. In this podcast, following some catastrophic weather events around the country, we've all been thinking about our food supply chains and seeing some empty spaces on supermarket shelves. Recently, WOW has conducted a food resilience survey, talking to the community and various stakeholders in the community, and the results have been released. Julia Blackford updates us on those results soon, but first, the Southern Lake Sanctuary was established in 2021 to unite and expand conservation work in the Queenstown Lakes District. Their focus is on predator control. Paul and the team are working on integrating and using technology to enhance conservation efforts, including trialling new techniques like environmental DNA and AI. Paul Kavanagh is the project director for the Southern Lake Sanctuary, and he joins me now on The Outlet. Hi, Paul. Welcome to The Outlet. Kia ora, Atamaria. Can you please give me a bit of a background to the Southern Lake Sanctuary and the work that you guys are involved in? Yeah, pleasure. So... Around the Queensland Lakes District, there's been incredible conservation work going on for, for generations, really. And we were formed in 2021 to try to kind of knit it together, to form a cohesive plan and to really ramp it up to bring it to, to landscape scale. Because the needs are great in conservation. We've got 35 at-risk species across our project area. And we are one of the largest conservation projects in the country. And a key part of our work, key part of our mahi is predator control. Because unfortunately in New Zealand, we have the highest proportion of endangered species of any country in the world. And that's mainly because of introduced mammal predators, mammalian predators. So we're losing about 26 million native birds in native forests every single year. So some pretty, pretty gruesome figures. But again, there's incredible work going on in this district, and it's our goal to really ramp that up and amplify it and knit it all together. So with that in mind, can you give me some details about the new networked trap system installation and how that's going to help you and the staff? Yeah, so I guess a key part of our operation, a key part of our Kaupapa is to really try to expand and keep pushing the boundaries, keep doing more conservation work and doing it better as well. We're trying to expand into much more remote areas and I guess no technology will ever replace the need for staff, for amazing, our incredible staff, boots on the ground. But technology can open up the opportunity to do much more conservation work over broader areas. So a key part of our, our work is trying to integrate that technology into self-resetting traps. So we've got some amazing new technology coming on board in the conservation space, which is all born out of the predator-free 2050 announcement. So a lot more tech companies are getting involved in conservation, which is is amazing for us because we're never going to achieve our lofty conservation goals with single set traps. If you imagine a rats, stoats, they're all incredible, really fast breeders. So we're never going to get there with single set traps. But a key issue we have in this region as well is the species, or one of the species we're most trying to protect, Kia, also make it difficult for what traps we can use. So there's currently no possum trap on the market that is also safe for Kia. So we're using a, a trap called an AT220 trap, and we're using that with technology from a local company called FTP Solutions. And we should have it live in the next couple of weeks where we can remotely monitor those traps. So from the office, 
We can see bait levels, battery levels. We can see what they've caught, when they've caught. But the tech is also working on using AI technology and with uh, a camera. So it only fires for a target species and you can also teach it to not fire for, for natives. So that technology means we could be using, we could roll that out across the areas where we do have Kia populations, which are those inaccessible areas. So it's a, it's a win-win for us. It is expensive technology, where we're factoring in staff time to get to some of these areas. It'll be game-changing technology. So really, really exciting. Yeah, that is amazing. And I've been reading about this new trial. It's about reptile monitoring, and you've done it in Queenstown and Central Otago. But that involves environmental DNA. So can you tell me a bit about how that works and maybe some of your initial results. Yeah, so eDNA, environmental DNA, is used in water sampling quite a bit and also in soil sampling. But we've been trialing it for reptile monitoring, which is quite a novel approach to doing it. And we are still at the proof of concept stage, but it's, so far it's really, really promising tech. Because a key thing in our region is we have one of the highest, probably the highest diversity of reptiles of any part of the, the country. Um, but 16 out of 18 of our reptile species are endangered. And a lot of these species are really cryptic. They're difficult to monitor. And if you're difficult to monitor, it's difficult to conserve them. So this technology, basically, we'll, it's quite a simple idea, but it's, again, it's using simple ideas with cutting-edge technology. So we've got um, pipes out across the lizard habitat with filtered paper filter brush along the bottom we leave that out in situ in the field and we remove it after two weeks and send it to the lab and then we can get information back about what species are present and we can then start to to build up a picture around occupancy modeling and see approximately what populations are are evident in an area so that just means we can again it's it's really effective roughly about a quarter of the price of traditional monitoring methods of staff going out and doing the monitoring and it's much less specialist heavy because reptile monitoring is really really it is quite difficult so it's fraught with complexities as well so if this method is working as it seems to be working and we will do a next stage stage of trialing in spring so if we can roll this out across bigger areas it will be game-changing technology and hopefully it's not just for reptiles. We could look to adapt this for other species. We do a lot of work with with Weta, um, so our beautiful, amazing rep, um, insect species. We could use it for, for predator monitoring in the future, potentially. So the opportunities are limitless for this, and it could be not just regionally important. It could be, it could be nationally important. It could be internationally important. So yeah, really, really exciting, but we are still at the proof of concept stage. Have you had any feedback on the trial from other conservation groups around the world? Yeah, definitely. A um, lot of interest, especially across the Motu, across the country. Because again, a lot of groups are getting much more involved in outcome monitoring. So not just talking about what we're trapping, it's what we're trying to save. It's a really important part of what we do, is trying to shift that narrative into reminding people why we trap. We wish we didn't have to trap. We're here and we work in conservation because we love animals and we do it to protect species. So we need to be doing much more efficient, widespread monitoring of our native species that we're trying to protect. And this outcome monitoring for reptile species is one that has a lot of interest from all across the country. So how do volunteer groups and corporates contribute to predator control projects? And and what sort of role do they play in the long-term survival of Indigenous wildlife, Paul? Great question. Um, Again, our 
our project, we're a consortium of six partner groups, founding groups, who came together to recognize the, the collective impact of us all working together. But it's not the story of those six, because those six groups actually represent close to 90 community groups. So that the people power is is what makes the opportunities limitless. And when we work together, that's that's where we can really build up to scale. And our one of our really key pillars is to empower the community. No conservation groups can do this mahi, do this work on their own. It's all about trying to engage all facets of the community. It's not necessarily every volunteer going out checking traps. It could be some community groups need support with with IT or fundraising. There's there's so many areas where people can help conservation but it is we all need to get involved in conservation environmentalism the environment underpins every single thing we do and the need is urgent we are the last generation who can make a difference before it's too late both for climate change and also biodiversity loss so we need as many people getting involved in biodiversity as 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 possible and including including corporates tourism everything because Tourism needs a healthy environment. We need a healthy environment and a healthy environment needs tourism and needs needs businesses. You do see a lot of younger people getting really involved in this type of thing, which is great. And I know this is kind of a big question, but what do you think are the biggest challenges and opportunities you see in achieving the predator-free 2050 goal? Great question. Um, yeah, quite, quite, there are quite a few challenges. It is one of the most ambitious conservation projects any country has ever embarked on, and we're doing it in New Zealand. But we have to reach for these big, ambitious goals because that's what garners the interest from the community. We we can't rely on us hippie conservationists to do this work, as I said. So it's a really big, ambitious goal, and that's what has also got these tech and innovation companies involved because we cannot achieve these goals using current technology. It's all about new technology and it's all about that collective impact of our of getting everyone involved. So the key issues, I guess, is funding. It's, it's unfortunate, but so many of our conservation groups are bouncing from short-term funding to short-term funding and environmentalism. You need to be thinking multi-generation. You need to be thinking about conservation being a gift from our generation to future generations. And it's hard to do that when we're all sweating for for our futures. Another issue is staffing. So we've got 22 incredible staff. A lot of our staff are local staff, who local people who moved back during COVID, for example. And in Queenstown, there hasn't always been career pathways in conservation. I've been here kind of 15 years and there's there's just some amazing conservation groups, but there's the need is great and the amount of people involved is is few historically. So we need to get more people involved in conservation projects and those projects need to be enduring. People need to see those career pathways or they will get poached and they'll move to, to Aussie or to Canada or whatever. So Staffing is definitely a big issue for, for the Predator Free 2050 movement, and they recognize that. So whether that's getting more more conservation courses in polytechs and universities, and it's really trying to, for people to see it as a really rewarding, a really beneficial career choice as well. We have to move from conservation being a volunteer-driven environment or industry 
into professionalized, really high-powered industry that is supported by the amazing volunteers. Well, how do people get involved, Paul? What's the best way to go about it, helping you guys out? Yeah, so again, with with Southern Lake Sanctuary, we are a consortium of, of a lot of groups involved. So it's all about the scale. So we we don't directly manage volunteers, but our, our partner groups do. So around these areas, like we've got saying around Queenstown we've got Fuckatiba Wildlife Trust who do some amazing work the head of the lake up Rupert and Dart as well they're incredible up there over towards Wanaka there's Wanaka Backyard Trappers there's amazing work up Matukituki Valley and Makarora so all of these groups need support whether it's volunteer time whether it's funding and for us we're kind of the operational arm so we've got the 22 staff who can do the work that the volunteers either can't do or don't want to do and again it's trying to move into the really difficult remote areas where where it's not feasible to send send volunteers always we are on a funding drive massively at the minute we've got a year left of our funding and our gains have been we feel we've achieved a lot on our journey thus far but we're just getting started and we need the funding to to support our mahi to support our work so we need that enduring long-lasting funding so we can start planning long term. So where's the best place online for people to go? So our website is really good. Um, it's southernlakesanctuary.org.nz or else check out any of our social media channels, Instagram and Facebook and things as well. And there's information about contact details because yeah, we're really open for, for feedback on any ways people can help because again, we need everyone to get involved in this these very ambitious co-papa and goals. Well, listen, Paul, you and the team are doing just a fantastic job. I love all your social media and everything that you're doing. So thank you very much for the work you are doing. And thanks for having a chat today. Kia ora, thanks, Bren. You're listening to The Outlet. I really like the interviews. I like that it's easy to listen to while I'm at the gym. I like that it's local and all about this community. The Outlet. The talk of Queenstown. Following some catastrophic weather events around the country, we've all been thinking about our food supply chains and seeing some empty spaces on supermarket shelves. Recently, WOW has conducted a food resilience survey, talking to the community and various stakeholders in the community, and the results have been released. Julia Blackford from WOW takes us through the findings that certainly contained a few surprises. Hi, Julia. Welcome to The Outlet. Hi, how are you? Very good, thank you. So what were the major findings from the first phase of the WOW Food Resilience Project that you worked on? Really, we wanted to get a bit of a snapshot of what was happening in our region. So that was the main focus of what we were doing. And we did this a number of ways by talking to our community and also talking to our what we call our stakeholders in our food system. And they uh, told us through a variety of different ways what our sort of main challenges are in our district and also our our main opportunities. So in terms of challenges, what we kind of worked out was that as a region, we are heavily reliant on bringing most of our food into the district, which makes us very vulnerable. Um, So sort of over 90% of our food comes in from outside of our, our region. And to double down on that, In our region, the food that we do grow and produce, we do not have enough diversity in what we grow across all of the food uh, sectors in our food system here. The third major challenge that we saw was that land in our district has become so expensive, particularly highly productive land, which typically 
sits around the lakes and at the valley floors and this is also the land that people like to develop and build on so there's a, um, a real issue with the affordability of land that is good for growing food and also with that farmers are quite concerned about succession with their farms. Uh, the fourth major challenge that we have as a region is that our local market, so our local community, it's very hard for our growers and farmers to access and to sell product to that community, weird as it sounds. And that is both from a profitability point of view, um, they're finding it very difficult to make profit and sell through the supermarkets here. And the other reason is because of the high level of compliance required. And then the fifth challenge that we have as a region is that our the way we live now and our modern lifestyle makes it really difficult to grow food and and because of that that we've kind of become disjointed from growing and preserving and making our own food and there's started to be quite a significant loss of knowledge in this space so those were our five top challenges and risks on the flip side we had some real opportunities and strengths and and I'll just quickly run through those. So the first was that we have a really highly knowledgeable, passionate and innovative food system in our region. Whilst it's quite small, there is a huge amount of knowledge, particularly about growing in our quite unique climate. And there's also a huge amount of passion around innovating to meet the challenges and the demands that we have. Another opportunity we have is, funnily enough, around tourism. Whilst in an acute situation, if we had a, a you know a natural disaster, we've got a lot more mouths to feed. The added people that we have visiting our community in the form of tourism can actually really bolster a uh, strong local food system. They come here, they are interested in eating local, they're interested in being involved in the local food system. And that can really support things like farmers markets and the growth of sort of artisan products and really sort of support that local food system growth. Another strength that we have here in our region is that we have a lot of space and we do have the natural resources, particularly over summer with our huge sunlight hours, to grow food. So we actually are quite well placed to grow food and our direct neighbouring districts are also very good at growing food too. So that is a real benefit when it comes to food resilience. One of the other strengths that was highlighted through our interviews with our stakeholders is that we have quite a unique and quite an amazing food bowl in our wild spaces and that comes in the form of animals that we can hunt. I'm talking about particularly pest animals like wild deer and pigs Uh, and we have a huge amount of species that we can forage as well. And then our fifth benefit that came out of the research was around having a community who are really willing and keen to reconnect with our local food systems. So that is a huge benefit when you start looking at how we can do things more local focused and better. So that was kind of very, very top note, the challenges and the strengths that we have in our little food system here in in our region. I think it shows too that perhaps community gardens and utilising that land as you say probably is going to be a big solution for all that isn't it? Yeah it's definitely a huge part of the solution both in that reconnection with our food system and, and rebuilding the education and the knowledge in that area and also literally providing food that comes that is grown in the district isn't doesn't have to come in via a truck so 
a lot of those sort of solutions have a couple of benefits. So what surprised you most in the feedback from the survey? So the survey itself, which was a community survey, um, we asked a lot about how people are getting their food. Two things that really stuck out for me, one is that we very, very reliant on our six biggest supermarkets here. So our New Worlds and Pack and Saves and Countdowns and Fresh Choice. We, as a community, probably one of the most reliant communities on those six stores in the country. The other thing that was really fascinating for me is actually, whilst we do rely on those supermarkets so much, is that we actually have a high number of of our community who are trying to forage food, hunt food or grow their own food. So 82% of our community say that they will get food either by hunting, foraging, growing or collecting. It's just not making up a huge amount of our food. So those were probably the two stats that stuck out the most for me. Are people really worried about the food supply? Did that come through? Yeah, certainly in the in the survey, it is starting to be forefront of people's mind. So I think we had 72% of our respondents said that they are concerned to a, a high level about food resilience. And mostly they're starting to see it with things like, you know, they go to the supermarket and they haven't been able to get things that perhaps were easy to get in the past. And that's come out particularly since COVID and, you know, more recently with the lack of egg supply and those sorts of things, people are starting to kind of think, well, maybe I can't just rely on the supermarket system to look after me always. So as part of the wider Food Resilience Project, do people mainly think about weather events as disruption to the food supply or do they sort of recognise some other factors in the region as well? Uh, I think there's a different level. Um, the Certainly the people within the food system in our region very aware of some other risks. So it's not just weather, it is natural disaster, which is for us is probably the one that people are most concerned about is an, an AF8 or a very large scale earthquake. We can become very isolated here very quickly because of our roading system, which we've just heard is very, we're so reliant on our roading system to bring our food in. You know, if we have a huge earthquake, we could face months with those roads not being accessible. So that came out, people are concerned about another pandemic and they're also concerned about other things like uh, pests and blights and economic pressures as well. So that's what the food system itself is concerned about. Where can people read the survey and get some tips on being food resilient, Julia? Well, the survey makes up a small part of a much bigger food resilience report. That report is available on our website, which is www.wao.co.nz under the food resilience section. So that has been made available since last week. Anyone can go on and have a look and and learn a little bit more about what our food system looks like now, what it looked like in the past, and it's shaping really to how we can move it towards a more resilient sort of future. Thank you so much for all the work that you are doing on this and, and the wider project, which is great. And thank you very much for chatting today. No problem at all. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Download the Queenstown app from the App Store or Google Play. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Outlet. The Outlet is produced and published by the Queenstown app and supported with funding from the New Zealand Public Interest Journalism Fund. If you have a story or an interview you think should be featured on the Outlet podcast, get in touch by clicking on the contact button on the Queenstown app. 
The outlet is available on the podcast button of your Queenstown app and wherever you get your podcasts.